Our passage of Scripture is found from 1 Peter 3, first seven verses. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning's message is a part two. Last week was part one. We looked at the scriptures here having to do with the conduct and the inner beauty of the wife. This whole passage has a key word. And it's the word literally that is subordinate. Sub means to be under and ordinate means to be according to a lawful authority, to be under a lawful authority. And so what's been spelled out in the first place was how we as citizens are to be subordinate and be in submission to the emperor, the king, the heads of state, and those that have authority over us in the civil government. Then the next thing we looked at was the subordinate role that the slave has to a master, or by extrapolation we can think of an employee to an employer and the role that is there. In each instance, the key thing is we submit to them those authorities over us as unto the Lord. It's not just a mere subjugating ourselves to the brutal tyranny of an overlord, but it is each one of us submitting ourselves to the Lord himself. And in thus submitting ourselves to the Lord, we are obedient and compliant and respectful of those who are in authority over us. And this does not change when it comes to the marriage relationship between the husband and the wife. Last week we spoke a good bit about that relationship and how it kind of squares away. 
And in summary, it's things like it doesn't mean that the man is to be submitted to because he is smarter or wiser or because he is of a higher quality. But it is because it is an obedience to God that wives are called to do this. And one of the interesting things that is mentioned here by Peter is that the wife may win over or be instrumental in the conversion of her unbelieving husband. Now, Paul tells us in a very extensive passage in the book of 1 Corinthians dealing with a whole array of subjects around the idea of marriage, uh, both living single and living in, in, uh, in marriage union and all the things that Paul talks about there, he emphasizes that the, um, the woman can be instrumental in leading an unbelieving husband to the Lord by her conduct. And Paul even says there to reinforce that notion that the children of such a union what we would think of as an unequal yoking between an unbeliever and a believer, that the children of such a union are holy. That is, they are sacred. They're set apart for the Lord. The role of the wife in leading to the conversion of an unbelieving husband has been one of the paramount things in Christian history. If you study Christian history, you'll say, see that quite often women were converted first and then the influence they had in the home, the difference that it made in the hearth in the home, eventually the husband was one to the Lord. A wife many centuries ago had an unbelieving husband and they lived in the Roman Empire culture that we described a few weeks ago, the various strata of society with the elite ruling over underclasses and all the things that went with that, the, the semi-brutality that was in the slave-master relationship and also the humiliation that the women suffered in the, in the marriages at home and women being regarded as property and even as chattel and the absolute control that the husband had over the wife and the children. We spoke of that a few weeks ago. This dear woman lived in that very culture. Her husband was an unbeliever. But through her godly conduct, over the years, it made a difference. To add to her stress and distress is her son had grown up to be like his father and had adopted a hedonistic lifestyle and was living a life of debauchery. But Monica lived to see her husband Patrice come to know the Lord. And her son Augustine who later became St. Augustine, to become not only a believer, but a model for believers for centuries and one of the most influential theologians and preachers in Christian history. A wife.
a mom. Just living right. Humbly before her God. Submissive to her husband. Diligent in her duties toward her family, her children. God honored that and blessed it. Beloved, we live in a different world and a different plane than the world around about us. Our ethic, our viewpoint, our mode of behavior is completely different from that which is in the world around about us. That which tends to be self-centered, that which emphasizes rights, that which is is self-directed and self-centered. We're called by God to be different kinds of human beings, individually and in relationships. Now, the relationship that's under view this morning is the relationship of the marriage. And we talked about the wife and the adornment and so forth last week, but then we add this one verse today having to do with the husbands. Likewise, in other words here, going along with the same line of thinking, the notion of subordination. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Um, That's the ESV translation. The word is the word for knowledge. And literally, or even kind of more crassly literal, it might be say, uh, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. I think that's the way the authorized King James has it, if I remember. Do you recognize that word? Knowledge. It has a background in the Old Testament. The word to know one's wife teaches us of the intimacy of the one flesh. What the apostle here is clearly saying to the husbands is your relationship to your own wife is to have that kind of intimacy. In other words, you are to know your wife literally, physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. If it's, if it's hard for a wife maybe to hear the words, submit to your husband, and there's just a certain reaction to that. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> How does that work itself out? If that's a difficult word to hear, uh, wives, I suggest to you this is a difficult word for men to hear. Because men are not wired at times to spend the time and the effort to dedicate themselves to the attentiveness that it takes to really know your wife. And to know your wife as she is in herself, not simply as you relate to her. There's a difference. In relationship, there's this party, that party, and then there's the dynamic of the relationship. There's the tertian quid, the third thing in a relationship. 
How do they relate to each other? And the call upon the Christian marriage is that that is to be a one flesh entity. And that's our burden. That's our call. That's our, it's really a joy, but it is, it, it is a challenge. And the husband is assigned the responsibility to make it that. He's the one that is given the spiritual responsibility of living in, with his wife in such a way that he establishes the one flesh. And Adam started it all when he first saw Isha, woman. He said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is the person that God has given to me to complete me the help that is meet and suitable for me, the one who will complement, not giving you compliments, but to complete the compliment to me. I alone am not all that I need to be, but I am complemented by this, a new creation of God given to me. It's interesting, the Lord brought the woman to the man Man receives her as from the Lord, the most precious of human gifts. So he's called upon, or husbands were called upon, to live with our wives in this manner. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. You'd kind of read that differently, showing dishonor to the woman because she's weaker. That's kind of the way the secular mind, the unbelieving mind, the, 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 the natural man thinks is because she has certain physical traits that are weaker, we would think of, then she is not to receive the honor. She's not up to par. She's not on our level. Oh, what an abominable way to think. What a pitiful way to think. The honor that comes to her is because she has that built-in capacity to be submissive. One of the most interesting things, and I won't be too graphic this morning, but just observe nature. Observe horses and other animals in their rituals, their mating rituals, and see that even though the female has dominant strong characteristics. There are times in many instances, in many species, where there's a certain element of aggression in the male that reinforces what God has programmed into nature. And for a man to simply rely upon that is absolutely makes him a brute, an animal. God wants us to honor and to recognize the sacred preciousness of our wife. Her weaker vessel status makes her more precious, more vulnerable, more fragile, more in need of that which God has given us. And that is the capacity for protection and guarding and preserving and defending ourselves, our wives, our families. 
And God wants us to move in that direction to always be the, the, the tendency of a man is to cow, tow, and to be brutalized by other men and then to go home and be physically abusive to his wife. It's right the opposite. God wants us to cherish and nourish that tender and wonderful partner he's given us. And then to stand up to the man who would brutalize us or who would intimidate us. Most men do it right the opposite. A godly man finds the tenderness with his wife and the toughness with the dude that would push him around and abuse him and infringe upon his freedoms and rights. So we're called to grow a spine, men, to get a little backbone and to increase the viscera of our souls in our relationships. And, this, and the reason it's given is they are heirs with you of the grace of life. I love that phrase, grace of life. Grace, of course, charis means gift. And life is a gift from God. We tend to take it for granted. We tend to think we're here kind of automatically or we're here uh, uh, just because we exist. But the scriptures are clear that every person on earth is here by God's grace in obedience to God's commandments and in the outworking of the nature that God gave the race to be fruitful and multiply and to come into a place where there are many souls, many, many people, an enlargement of the human race in order that more tongues, a thousand tongues, 10,000 tongues can praise the Lord in order that there might be in the human race that which there is in the stars, an innumerable host praising the Lord. And so each person from their mother's womb from conception is a special person before the Lord. That's why we so strongly oppose abortion and all types of taking of life because we see that life itself is a gift from God and it is given by God and it is not to be taken away by anyone else. We are heirs of the gift of life. But I think that word life here is loaded up a little more by way of interpretation. It's not just the human life that's spoken of, but it's the grace of eternal life, the life that we have been given. In Christ, male and female, enjoy the same identity in Christ, the same existence in Christ. The eternal life that a husband enjoys is the eternal life that a wife enjoys. So there is no difference in status, no subordination, 
No inferiority, superiority in Christ. They're neither male nor female in Christ, is the way Paul puts it in Galatians. We are heirs together so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's an interesting assumption built into this little reason that's given here, and that is that a husband and wife are praying people, that he prays and she prays and they pray together, and that their hearts are tuned in prayer, and they come close in prayer. It's hard to come to the altar or to the table when you have aught against your brother, the scripture says, if you hold a grudge, if you have, how much more difficult is it to join with your spouse and your wife in prayer if there is a feeling there of any kind of breach of trust, of confidence. There's a tenderness there that the Lord knows cannot stand the light of the presence of God. And that is what our prayers are. Now, St. Paul, and just by way of conclusion, I'm just simply going to read the, uh, the passage. It's very familiar. St. Paul always does what, what St. Peter doesn't do. St. Peter says it like this. Paul says it like this. <laughs> same, same, same doctrine. I've done a study years ago. It was a fascinating study of comparing the teachings of Paul with the teachings of Peter. And you know, the liberal view is, you know, there's contradictions in scripture and this one doesn't match that one. And there's development in the, the sits in Laban, the situation in life determined the, the outlook of the author. And so the Bible is, con, you know, conflict and it was different times and different, all that sort of thing. So what are the things to do to counter that is to read carefully and to see where those conflicts are and where those compatibilities are. And listen to the way Paul lays all this out here as I conclude. Listen to what more he brings it and then especially how he puts the whole thing into the view of the sacred marriage that is Christ and his spouse, his bride. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. In a few moments, he's going to say that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So men, think of yourself as the head of your wife. That's kind of fun to think about, isn't it? <laughs> think of yourself as her savior and think of what the savior had to do to save you. Think of what kind of condition you were in when you needed saving. Think of what he's done for you in salvation. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. You're looking for faults in your wife? Do you realize it's your job to correct those faults, to clean them up, to wash? The language here, listen to this language, sanctify, cleanse, wash, without spot, without wrinkle, in splendor, holy, without blemish. Husbands, is that the way you'd like your wives to be? Well, let me tell you what the scriptures, let me assign you a reading. Read 
the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not you know, y'all look at me like, yeah, he makes an assignment every Sunday morning. And, but I, I want you to do that this time. Read Ezekiel 16. Write it down and sometime this week, just take that and take it out of context. You don't have to study all of it. Just take that one prophecy and it's a long chapter, long chapter. And that'll tell you the story of what God did to his bride. It's a story about a little baby girl that's thrown out and is filthy and orphaned. Even the cord, is, the umbilical cord is still in her body. She is born and thrown out into the wilderness and abandoned. And then the, read the whole story about how she's taken and she's washed and she's cleansed and she's, she's adorned and she's made beautiful. And there's a passage after passage about how she develops physically and becomes beautiful. And it's kind of explicit. And then the whole story of, of her straying away from her, from her intended, her betrothed, her going away. We would think of it as her backsliding and moving away. And then the, the way in which she is drawn back to her betrothed, to her lover, to her husband. And then finally, the last few verses will said, and they made a covenant. And I like that phrase in there. Somewhere you'll find it if you read it. He makes her his. I will make you mine. And that's what Christ does for us in the church. And this is the way, the way husbands are to be to their wives. Ezekiel, what chapter? 16. Okay, be, be sure. In, in the same way, he talks about all that washing, cleansing, that that, uh, that vivid picture in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That's what we are to do to our wives if we're to live in the knowledge. We're to nourish her and cherish her just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. And then he quotes the, the Old Testament. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is mega big. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of one of you love his wife as himself and the wives get the last word again and let the wife see that she respects. And it's that same word we've seen over and over, fears, reverences. It's we're to do that to the emperor, we're to do that to the Lord, and we are to do that, wives to our husbands, husbands to our wives. See that she respects her husband. Remember, ladies, remember Monica. And husbands, remember Christ. 